What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange today. And we have a new question emerging when it comes to all of this meme madness. Are retail investors actually getting played? We'll search for some answers and tell you what people are saying. Plus, as more legacy players jump into the EV space, one area that could benefit, of course, are the charging stocks. But there are so many of them. We're going to speak with Blink Charging about its plans for expansion after a massive rally over the past year. And would you pay for tweets? We have BlackBerry's best ideas and how Apple is bringing workers back to the office. It's all ahead of us, but let's start with the markets that Scott just alluded to. Seema Modi has all the numbers. Seema? Kelly, one day ahead of the jobs report, the Dow is attempting to stage a comeback here. Positive after staging a 266-point decline at the open. We're currently up about 24. The 10-year yield back to 1.6% here uh, on that upbeat economic data that we got out in the last two hours. That sort of prompted some more concerns around inflation. The tech sell-off continues. Three to one decliners on the Nasdaq. But just to put this move into perspective, the composite still about 4% away from its intraday record. Biggest losers in technology? Well, it's sort of a combination of big tech, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, DocuSign, keeping an eye on this name ahead of its earnings report. After the bell, shares are down just about 2.2%. What is working for the market right now? Take a look at cannabis stocks led by Tilray, the stock up about 4%, an upgrade from analysts at Cantor Fitzgerald following its merger with Alfria for $4 billion. The price target uh, of $22, which does imply about 16% upside from current levels. Kelly? All right. Seema, thank you. We appreciate it. Seema Modi. And we begin today with the reversal in several big meme stocks today. As you've been seeing all session, AMC is getting crushed and having its third worst day of the year. It's down about 15% right now. It issued plans to announce plans to issue another 11 million shares. It's not, it's not just AMC, though. Look at costs. Look at Bed Bath. Look at GameStop. They're all down big. GameStop down to only 6%. Gain Bed Bath down 25%. Christina Parts and Nevelis is here with a look at the shorts. Christina, who might be breathing a sigh of relief now that this is reversed a bit. Maybe a small sigh of relief given uh, the losses, but it is a change of tone that we're seeing across the board. And that's once AMC this morning filed to sell those 11.6 million shares. The stock fell so much on the news that it triggered a volatility halt. And now it's down uh, just well over 20%. But this drop, this is what I want to focus on. It comes on the heels of an incredible run for AMC that we saw yesterday, Wednesday. So much so that AMC's filing today warned investors, quote, under the circumstances, we caution you against investing in our Class A common stock unless you're prepared to incur the risk of losing all or a substantial portion of your investment. And that's exactly what happened yesterday on Wednesday. The rallies in these meme stocks like AMC, BlackBerry caused the short sellers to lose almost $5 billion in one day. AMC, for example, closed 95% higher. Not too bad, causing a loss of $2.75 billion for anyone who bet the stock would fall. And that was just yesterday. Well, we saw people coordinating their purchases online, Reddit, Twitter, etc., hoping to fuel a steep rally in AMC's stock price and ignite a massive short squeeze. Today, though, we are seeing some profit-taking. Of the 10 worst performers on the Russell 2000, 
Five of them are meme stocks like PetMed, BlackBerry, and Express. And of course, a crowd favorite, GameStop. So what's ahead for investors? Of course, is anyone's guess, right? Of course, but we're just getting some details on this AMC share offering. So let's bring it to everybody. They completed their 11.5 million share at, um, at the market equity offering. They've already completed it today. They raised $587 million. This brings, I believe, their total sh- uh, share count, Christina, to over $500 million from about $50 million last year. Usually those economics would not result in the price action that we've really? seen you know, over the past couple of weeks. But it might be one of these cases of, as Bill Miller joked about this with Bitcoin, but the higher the stock price, the more attractive it is. In other words, for AMC, the higher the stock price, the more they can do these offerings. And maybe they will be able to spin the entire industry together with this equity or something. What about some dilution, though? If you keep exactly. throwing these shares out there, like how much higher can this go? Obviously, this is the big question we ask constantly. And look at the share price reaction to yeah. this. Even as we bring you the details of that share completion, they're ticking towards almost session highs. We're only down 7% on the session after doubling yesterday, basically. So that's why a lot of people are, are you know, very happy online, those that can own this stock or have, sold, you know, taken the momentum run. It's extraordinary. Their average price, by the way, for issuing these shares was $50.85, which just tells you about the demand. Ugh. Just astonishing. This is going to go down in the textbooks. Um, Christina, thank you. Thank we you. appreciate it. Maybe the shorts aren't so happy right now, depending on how this session plays out. All right. It's been billed as the year that Main Street investors overtook Wall Street, saved iconic American companies, and yes, squeezed out the shorts. But is it too soon to declare the triumph of the retail investor? Is the public actually getting played here when you pull back the curtain on some of these meme trades. Joining me now, Abe Deshpande is Chief Investment Officer of Centerstone Investors. Chris Crisanti is Chief Equity Strategist and Portfolio Manager at MAI Capital Management. Um, Chris, I'll turn to you first. I mean, are you concerned about the price action in some of these trades? Uh, of course, Kelly. How could you not be? Um, and, and I think it makes a great story that these retail, you know, Davids are beating up the institutional Goliaths. I'm just not sure it's true. I mean, I I think January was kind of the the training grounds. And I think the hedge funds are onto this and and they're they're bidding the stocks up to squeeze the shorts. And then they're getting out to leave the retail investors holding the bag as the stocks retreat over the next couple of weeks. So I would be very, very careful. Chris, what would you tell? So the retail investors are aware of this dynamic, right? They're constantly trying to figure out who's in the forums and if, you know, if this dynamic is being turned against them. And there are plenty of them who have actually made quite a bit of money on these trades, you know, not all, but certainly some. So they might be sitting there going, I don't feel like I'm getting played. I feel like I've gotten, I've made some pretty good trades. Sure. That's why it's so attractive because there will be some headlines of folks that, that did actually come out on the right side of the trade. But again, especially with the stocks where they are now, AMC being a perfect example, you know, I, I think that the upside is behind us and the downside of a stock that is losing money and now has a market cap of over $30 billion is, is really problematic. Abe, what would you add to this discussion? Uh, well, first of all, Centerstone, we're, we're investors, not traders. I, the people are invi- involved in these stocks are day traders. Our holding period is five years. The average holding period for an AMC or whatever is five days. So this is a whole different community, day trading community. They've always existed. They will, all, they have, will continue to exist. Uh, you know, just one cautionary note here is that, you know, the generals sounded the retreat months ago. If you look at Tesla and the ARK Innovation Funds, the moment the momentum leaders that were in charge for many months. And, you know, for some reason, the you know, these little brigades are still out there, uh, you know, fighting, <laughs> fighting these little battles. But uh, I think anyone with any sense knows that it's going to end poorly. I mean, AMC, the intrinsic, if, if you were to ask me, 
as you know, you mentioned Buffett or Kelly mentions Buffett on her uh, sure. blog sometimes. And if you were to ask me, what would I pay if I had like a suitcase full of cash for, the, for AMC, for instance, my answer would be about $2 a share. All of the value is taken up by the debt. I might actually, and, and the, you know, of course, the debt holders know this. That's why the bonds trade a discount to the par. Um, and even the new uh, Mudrick uh, offering, they, they didn't just, you know, get something for nothing. They, they got first lean secured bond at 15% coupon. That's Which is a great point. So that, and yeah, that I mean, puts them is, first in line. So in other words, the sort of the hedge fund is first in line here, you know, in the event. Stock. Right. So, but, but let me ask you this, Abe. AMC, I think I've heard it has about $5 billion in debt. Well, its market cap is now substantially a multiple of that. You know, it started the year with debt bigger than its market cap. Now its market cap is much bigger than its debt. Does that not create a dynamic in which the issuance and some of the things they're doing can create the cash flows to service that debt in a more sustainable way than we would have ever thought just three or four or five months ago or certainly in the depths of the pandemic? The number I gave you as what I would pay for the entire business was based on them getting back to the peak revenues that they had, $5 billion in revenues. Hmm. There's $5 billion in debt, yeah, but you know they have uh, $800 million every year of rent expense to their, to their landlords. For, you know, they lease all those properties. And the amount of leverage that's there um, through on and off balance sheet financing, is, it just overwhelms any sort of case you can make from a fundamental perspective for there being any significant amount of value in the equity. Certainly not... $20 billion. I mean, I, I would, maybe there's a nuisance value of three or $400 million, but you know, it, it, this is, again, this is a completely different dynamic. Centerstone is an investor. Yeah. These are day traders. They're trading on something, a story. The story is going to play out for many years, but then they're holding for five days. Okay. Like, you know, there's so many dislocates, this, uh, things that don't make sense here. But one thing that clearly makes sense that this is a day trading phenomenon yeah, I love the way that you broke this down to kind of get at your intrinsic value and just to make sure everyone understood that you're saying it's basically $2 a share. So for Chris, those who are looking for the anti-meme stocks, you know, the other, yes. the ways to kind of avoid this, sure. I know you've brought some ideas. In a nutshell, what are they? Sure. So so with, with the magician uh, waving the shiny new thing, the meme stocks, I, I think there's two companies, Lockheed Martin and Stryker, that are serious businesses that make things of great consequence. And, and both have way underperformed over the last year. So while the attention is diverted elsewhere, look at Lockheed. So you're, you have an F-35, you have a stock that's underperforming because a Democrat has been elected. That's happened before. These stocks tend to bounce back. And the world is clearly not a safer place than it was 10 years ago. So really like that stock trading way below a market multiple. Stryker makes your artificial hips and knees mm -hmm. and shoulders. And that's a reopening trade and one of the few reopening trades that's underperformed for the last year. And while you might cancel your vacation, you're only going to postpone your new hip and shoulder. And, and now numbers are returning in great volumes there. All so right. we're excited about both of those plays. And we have to leave it there. I just want to mention, Abe, your picks include Sunoco in the U.S. and Air Liquid in France. So for people who all want to know where you would put your money to work, there are a couple of ideas as well. Great discussion, guys. Thank you both. Abe Deshpande sure. joining Thank me you. alongside Chris Grisanti on these markets today. And is the rise of Main Street actually benefiting Goldman Sachs? Goldman's been sitting at all-time highs after another 4% gain over the past week. Goldman, in fact, has climbed 47% so far this year, making it the best performer in the Dow. It's even outperforming the financials ETF, which is up 30% year to date.
Since CEO David Solomon took the helm, Goldman shares are up 71 percent, and he has made some major changes. While Goldman launched Marcus, its consumer arm back in 2016, the push into Main Street lending really ramped up in 2019, highlighted by that credit card partnership with Apple. Goldman is also doubling down on technology, recently hired a former Uber exec who specializes in fintech and payments, and it's hopped on the crypto bandwagon by offering high net worth clients access to Bitcoin investments. Joining me now to dig into Goldman's evolution and its valuation, Jeff Hart is senior research analyst to Piper Sandler and New York Times reporter Kate Kelly is here as well. And it's great to have you both here. Kate, let me just start with you. You know, does Goldman still represent Wall Street uh, as far as you're concerned? That's a great question. I certainly think about it as as a Wall Street firm when I write about it for the New York Times, maybe even sort of the Wall Street firm, because its brand and its franchise, I think, still loom very large in people's minds. And that may be actually partly because so many of their alumni go into government. So they may have like a slightly higher profile um, than some other banks. But it's it's a good question, Kelly, because I do think all of the one-time investment banks have sort of uh, morphed into different ways. I mean, Morgan Stanley obviously has gone very deeply into the wealth management and also sort of the retail wealth management business, the mass affluent. Um, JP Morgan, City. Bank of America obviously are universal banks and were pre-crisis as well. Um, and, and then you have Goldman, which is only just now sort of ramping up this consumer business. If you talk to some analysts, I'm eager to hear Jeff's take, they would tell you their clients hate the retail business for the most part, and they don't know uh, of almost anyone that's investing in the bank for that reason. But that said, it has been a priority of David Solomon's and Lloyd Blankfein before him. Uh, they have seen some growth. There's been some realignment in that money management business, and it seems to be doing very well. Asset management, um, which is separate from the retail, had a very good first quarter. And it, it must be said, the first quarter had record revenues. Wow. They're on track right now uh, to make well over a billion dollars in revenue per year, which sort of blows away their pre-crisis record. So, Jeff, let's turn to you on that note and ask, you know, is the retail business something that attracts people to Goldman, helps account for its outperformance this year or not? I mean, is David Solomon kind of a key person here in revaluing this company or is it just the market environment? Right. You know, the fact that rates are up a little bit and that sort of thing. I think on that end, it's a little bit of both. I mean, capital markets have been really strong, activity levels wide, and that plays into Goldman's hands. So certainly that's kind of given us some tailwinds, too. But David Solomon's made a lot of changes, and I think a lot of good changes that are, are starting to show up and bear fruit as far as generating revenues and, and improving kind of profits. So I think there's a, there's a fundamental shift kind of going on within Goldman, as well as kind of being, being exposed to the markets, which have been really strong. And, yeah, I mean, the Goldman Sachs shares have just been on, on fire, right? I mean, they've been up a lot this year. We liked them a lot at the end of last year. But even after the current run, I still see a lot of upside in these shares as we look forward. So let's talk about that because you just raised your price target, Jeff, to $420 a share. Um, that's only about 13 percent upside uh, or so from here. Uh, how do we know this is, you know, are we talking about price to book? Tell me about some of the valuation metrics and whether Goldman is kind of historically over or undervalued here. So, I mean, on the valuation side, when it comes to Goldman, I'm used to looking at price to tangible book value and comparing it to the ROTCE, kind of what they earn on it. And you can kind of do a regression over time, and depending on how much they earn as far as an ROTCE, you kind of, it spits out what a tangible book value multiple should be. And if I'm sitting here today and they're trading at, what, 1.5 times tangible, you put something like a 15% ROTCE in there, they're undervalued. I mean, there's definitely upside to come there. Um, When I look forward and kind of... 
my estimates because ultimately earnings kind of drive it. I don't think I'm being aggressive. I mean, I'm ahead of the street and more optimistic than most, but I don't think I'm being aggressive. If anything, I think there might be upside as opposed to downside risk to kind of my, my earnings expectations out over the next couple of years, which theoretically could, could even drive more upside. Wow. All right. So, Kate, final question. What does Goldman look like if we kind of play this all forward a couple of years out? No, that's so interesting. I mean, I assume if, if you talk to David uh, or his senior team, they would say, for one thing, we're going to continue to be much more transparent for investors. As I'm sure Jeff remembers, that was a big theme of their first investment uh, investor day about a year and a half ago. I'm, I'm sure they're hoping to see retail growth. They're launching new products for that Marcus business all the time. Presumably, markets will remain strong. You know, that was an interesting open question from Solomon's tenure. Having the investment banking background, not everybody had the faith that he could successfully run that global markets business. And there were calls to skinny it down even further than it had in those post-crisis years under Lloyd Blankfein. Um, they've had in some ways the wind at their back because there's just been so much volume and volatility, Kelly, in this last year and change, as you know, that that are ideal conditions for uh, making revenue in those areas in sales and trading. Whether that continues, whether they can navigate slightly more complex markets, presumably they can. And presumably David's going to continue with that franchise. But I think that's certainly something to watch. Yeah, no, pretty gratifying performance so far under his tenure and quietly one of the best performers in the market. Uh, Jeff Hart, Kate Kelly, thank you both. Appreciate it today. Coming up, the hunt for workers is heating up and some of the things companies are doing now may surprise you. We have an inside look ahead of tomorrow's jobs report. Plus, this stock is up 2000 percent in the past year, despite having no timeline for turning a profit and being one of the most shorted names on the street. We speak with the CEO coming up on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back. Recruiter.com is out with its May survey showing job recruiter sentiment back at an all-time high. After dropping a notch in April, the index is back up to 3.8, matching the high set in March. And there could be a battle brewing between employers and employees who want to keep working from home. The survey says three-quarters of the open jobs require employees to show up in person at least part of the time. And ahead of tomorrow's jobs report, let's bring in Evan Sohn for more details on this. He's chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Evan, it's great to have you. This often foretells what we might uh, see in, in big hiring numbers. But the main question really is, are shortages about to slow down the hiring pace that we could see across the economy in the months ahead? Um, 
first of all, thank you for having me on your show. And we, we agree. Uh, it's nice to see that the sentiment last month we reported the recruiter.com recruiter index was down to 3.7. Now it's up to 3.8. But we're really seeing now, as you mentioned, remote work is up. And at the same time, in-person requirements are up. So it, actually, the hybrid was the one area that went down. And we're seeing the struggle of employers trying to find candidates. It truly is a candidate market. 42% uh, of the recruiters that participated in the survey reported that salaries were increased from April to May. That's an incredible amount of money that's now being pushed out to candidates to get them to come join uh, their firms. And we think that the remote increase in remote is going to attract more talent. We also saw that in uh, we look at uh, what, uh, what uh, salary the jobs are that the recruiters are working on. And in April, about 15% of them were under that $40,000 category, that fifteen dollars to $40,000 a year in salary. That number went down to 11.5% in May. But the forty dollars to $80,000 actually went up from 18 to 21%. So there's more money going to those lower uh, hourly, less skilled labor jobs. And that's really this talent pool of where do you find these people? Sure. And uh, it's amazing to look at some of the anecdotes across. This is just from news headlines. Even this week, you have... You know, Travel and Leisure, uh, which is a hospitality company, offering associates up to $1,000 to stay for three months. You have WastePro, a garbage collection company, offering referrals and retention bonuses up to $3,000. We've talked about the McDonald's, different ones trying iPhone incentives or $50 just to show up for the job interview. Even at the high end, you have Cooley, a Palo Alto law firm, offering $2,500 to $7,500 in one-time bonuses um, to employees. And we're seeing this across the industry. So, yes, it's happening at the low end, but it's happening, it seems, up and down. And, and it's this mass reshuffling, it feels to me, of America's workers. Uh, absolutely. You know, you talked about the uh, hospitality industry, the food beverage industry made into the top 10. The recruiting industry, the recruiting <laughs> and staffing industry actually made into the top 10, up five, uh, five points from April in terms of what the jobs they're working on. Um, but you're absolutely right. You're seeing this reshuffling. And we, we actually really profess... Uh, to our clients looking at a different pool. And I think we talked about that last month is really where do you find these workers for these entry level hourly workers? And meanwhile, you have these millions of underemployed college and high school graduates. And we think that that's really just a great pool to start pulling from because you're going to have to change the narrative. You got to increase the salaries. You got to increase benefits, increase perks. Yeah. Uh, whether people want to work remotely or not, those are the things that companies are going to have to do to find those. Uh, candidates. One final observation, it is surprising to me that hybrid roles are becoming less popular. You know, I know a lot of people who are anticipating and they're, again, they're starting more in the kind of the mid 30s, 40s age group that they can continue to go into the office maybe three days a week. Do you think that that is something that could still be here to stay? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that there might just be a confusion when you're looking at a candidate. Is it remote? Is it in person? And I think the hybrid got people confused. What does hybrid mean? Do I need to have a high-speed internet at home and at the office? Do I need a dedicated space at my home and in my office? And I think that what you're seeing, as you mentioned before, Kelly, companies are trying to figure out what's it going to take to get those candidates to come to their company. Is it just better perks? Is it in-person but work home two weeks a month, as Apple is doing now? Uh, uh, sorry, two weeks a year where you could just work remotely. I, and I think that's really getting clarity on what that role actually is. And we think that the word hybrid 
might have confused a few people. What sure. does hybrid actually mean? Yeah, we're all trying to figure it out. Uh, meanwhile, people have you know massive mortgages and made major life moves predicated on the ability to retain this flexibility. That's why I find it so interesting. We'll see if you're pointing the right way for the job support in the morning, Evan. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, Kelly. Have a great day. Evan Sohn talking through the labor market. Coming up, if you want to invest in the EV space, you can buy the automakers, the charging companies. But what about investing in BlackBerry? We'll tell you about that straight ahead. Plus, the cruise stocks are having a stellar year as the reopening trade continues. But the industry is in a legal standoff with Florida that could put its future into question. We've got the latest. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. About half past the hour, let's get a check on the markets. Big turnaround for the Dow, which was down 265 at the lows. It's up 50 right now. Uh, slight gain, but it's the only major average that we're seeing that gain in at the moment. The S&P down fractionally. The Nasdaq down two-thirds of a percent. We've also been watching AMC. That one moved towards session highs after they completed their share offering. Let's check on the sectors where financials are among the leaders today, hitting a record high again. Utilities, energy, also some outperformers going the other way. Communication services, tech, and consumer discretionary. And let's look at the metals and miners continuing to pull back today with silver and copper among the worst performers. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's the news at this hour. The White House is putting a bigger focus on fighting corruption at home and abroad. President Biden calling for an interagency review to combat corruption and also identify intelligence gathering opportunities to uncover illicit financial activities. Florida Representative Matt Gates is under investigation again, this time for possibly obstructing justice. Prosecutors are examining a phone call that Gates had with a witness in the probe of sex crime allegations against Gates. And in Minneapolis, crews have removed barriers and artwork from the intersection where George Floyd was killed, a memorial informally known as George Floyd Square. Traffic did briefly flow through the area for the first time in more than a year, before community activists then put up new barriers. And tonight on the news, the debate over how to remember George Floyd and also what permanent memorials will now go up in Minneapolis. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Twitter sings the blues, Apple's return to work plan, and the two biggest CEO pay packages of 2020. It's all coming up in rapid fire. Don't go anywhere. It's right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Julia Borston, Christina Partzinevelis, and Wall Street Journal columnist and CNBC contributor Joanna Stern all join me this hour. First topic is Twitter unveiling officially its first ever subscription service. They're calling it Twitter Blue. It's kind of the inverse of what I thought they were going to be doing. They're aiming at the power users to pay up for this, Julia, whereas I thought they might aim at the regular users to pay up for access to the power of people, if that makes any sense. But some of the features are cool. You can undo tweets, bookmark folders, that sort of thing. And it starts in uh, Australia and Canada, right? 
That's right. It'll be roughly U.S. US $3 a month in Australia and Canada. We don't know exactly how much it will cost here in the U.S. yet or exactly when it will launch in the U.S. But, Kelly, to your point that you expected them to do something different and have the regular users pay for maybe more content from the power users, that's definitely something that could come soon as well. So I think the key thing here is they don't expect this to be the future of Twitter. They know it's going to be a smaller percentage of Twitter users that are willing to pay a monthly fee for something that we all associate with being a free service. But this does show Twitter making headway towards having multiple revenue streams. They don't want to just be about advertising anymore. And this is a key piece of that. Shares up about 1%, Joanna. Uh, What do you think about what you're hearing so far about this service? I think it makes a lot of sense for Twitter, especially focusing on the power users, of which I am one of them. And I think some others on this panel may be as well, (laughs) where we're on Twitter all the time. We may be willing to pay a little bit more money. In this case, I believe it's like three, three dollars, four dollars around that range uh, for a little bit more uh, features, a little bit more uh, accessibility to the platform. So some tricks and some tips there. Um, I think the big thing that I see here is that's a low price or it's a low subscription I don't know any subscription that hasn't gone up in price uh, by adding more features down the line. So I expect to see that as well. Christina, last word on this. I think it's a lot to do with increasing revenue. They have, like you said, uh, focused on ad revenue, but you've got Facebook and Snapchat, major competitors. And then you have activist investors like um, uh, Elliott Management as well as Silverlake that are pushing the company, Twitter, to increase their revenue. And Twitter has said they want to double their revenue to $7.5 billion by the end of 2023. So clearly they need some new revenue streams, $3.50 Canadian. Not sure that will really help move the needle, but maybe <laughs> with their other products that they're going to be looking at in the near future, like this tip jar service and super follows feature. But, uh, Julie, what do you think would be the one feature that, that would kind of unlock a rush of interest? Is it the undo tweet? Is it? I, I think they might offer some help if you're getting harassed and that sort of thing. Well, look, in terms of this new service uh, and Twitter Blue, they do have something that's sort of similar to an undo tweet. It basically gives you a 30 second period where they're like, do you really want to tweet this? Take a look at what your tweet looks like to make sure you don't tweet anything that you don't want to undo. I think there is uh, still demand for maybe a a tweet, a tweet. And a Twitter edit feature. <laughs> See, I wish I could just edit that. I wish I could just rewind that and edit that. Um, so there is um, demand for like really an edit feature within tweets, but that might be something that everyone would like and not just subscribers. I'm happy to announce Rapid Fire Blue, Julia, will allow you to uh, edit, self-edit <laughs> for 30 seconds. I'm willing to pay $6 for that to go back and change my answer from two minutes ago. Exactly. Based on what Twitter says. No, just kidding. All right, let's move along and talk about some of the memes stocks today. BlackBerry is riding the roller coaster this week. Now it's up about 20%, then it reversed lower, it turned positive again. This all in the session today. For investors who can look past all this volatility, could it actually be a stealth way to play the EV and connected car space? It's shifted from cell phones to focus on automobile software and cybersecurity technologies. It helps power drive, it helps power driver assistance and other tech features, and it's already embedded in nearly 200 million cars around the globe. Christina, the interesting thing about this is there are well-reasoned, thoughtful cases out there on the internet for anybody to see as to why they should own BlackBerry or any of these stocks. It just feels like the retail public is realizing that you can kind of pull forward some of those gains, right? It's like the more people who see this case 
and the more that it's discussed in forums, then maybe those gains that you thought BlackBerry might enjoy over a five-year time horizon, you can get in the five-day window that now that's appears not, to be the case. Yeah, that's, so that sounds like you're saying we're not trading on fundamentals, we're just trading on the momentum that people are rallying up in these groups. Yeah. But with BlackBerry in particular, I know that they've been making this cybersecurity shift for, for a long, long time. And you mentioned the 200 million cars out there, and that's almost 12% of all cars on the road today. So it is a substantial number of cars that are used Using this new technology, it's Q, uh, QNX, mm-hmm. which is the actual acronym for it. But with the momentum trade, I just want to point out volume. You had BlackBerry this morning, one of the most traded stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, talking about volume yesterday, about 346 million shares versus a week and a half ago to the date, May 24th, where there was only 5 million shares trading. Crazy. So, and Julie, crazy. we mentioned this earlier when we were talking about AMC. I mean, they're taking advantage of their share price by issuing. They're, they have 10x the share count today that they did a year ago. And the, and the price is dramatically higher. So it, it, it is just interesting to watch the, you know, kind of harness the power of the retail public to almost work in conjunction with these companies to achieve. It almost reminds me of like a SPAC or Shark Tank or something. It's like, hey, if we all get on the same page here, we can really help to grow this and enjoy it together. Well, Kelly, I think the interesting thing about BlackBerry is that it really does fall into these the same category as AMC and uh, and GameStop of these sort of these retro stocks, these stocks that represented a different time. And yes, BlackBerry has embedded its technology in all these EVs, and it is really, in a lot of ways, does have a fundamental argument, but not for that kind of volume. If you look at that kind of volume, <laughs> it does not make sense in the fundamentals. This is a meme stock. This is a momentum play. There's no way to talk about those 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 volume numbers that Christina was just talking about and have that make sense on a fundamental level. It is remarkable uh, to watch after yesterday's surge to watch it kind of hanging in there today, even after the issue. It's just extraordinary. Let's switch gears and talk about the latest back to work news. Apple is telling employees to come back to the office now. They just confirmed to CNBC that all workers will be in person at least three days a week starting in September. They said some teams may even return full time. All employees will have the option to work remotely at least two weeks out of the year. And Apple is going against the grain in Silicon Valley. Rivals like Twitter and Square have already said their employees can work from home forever. Google is keeping 20% of its workforce home for good. Joanna, are we going to start seeing work from home offered as part of the typical, hey, you get two weeks vacation, two weeks work from home package? Or is this shift going to be more significant? I mean, as we spoke about with Evan Stone in the last block, everyone's trying to figure out what hybrid means when we talk about this new hybrid model of both working in the office and working from home. Well, I really just wanted to say I miss my BlackBerry, so I, I wanted to contribute that to that last segment. <laughs> now we can move on. That's to how this work, whole thing which... started. Yeah, having BlackBerry on your phone was like the exactly. original, the very dawn of the work from home movement. That was hybrid work, right? Mm-hmm. We could work anywhere on our old Blackberries. I think Apple's interesting here. Um, they have not been as bullish about working from home as the other tech companies, certainly not as bullish as, as Twitter, who said sort of everyone can work from home for whatever, forever. Uh, Facebook and others also sort of now adjusting what they had said at the, at the outset of the pandemic. Um, I think hybrid makes a lot of sense for all these companies. I think Apple, you can't ignore the giant spaceship in their backyard, which is this massive campus they built. People like going to that office. I think that it was it, that's a big lure uh, for Tim Cook, who said in an email yesterday that certainly video conferencing has not replaced some of the in-person connection that the employees get. So not surprised to see Apple kind of move more back to the real office than just hybrid. That's a great point, Julia. It almost becomes a marketing uh, move to recruit workers, especially in this tight labor market. 
But look, and look, yeah. I've been to that Apple headquarters. It is spectacular. It is really impressive. And I, and I would understand why Tim Cook wants to get people back there. But I do think there's this question, though, about transparency. And I think now we're hearing from a lot of companies um, that they want to let employees know what's going to happen in the fall. The sense that this summer is going to be a little bit of a grace period where people can come in if they want or if they don't. But by the fall, companies want to figure out what their new normal looks like. And I think that this is going to be a recruiting tool. People saying you can work from home certain numbers of weeks or this is what our, our work from home hybrid situation is going to look like. And I think because we've paid so much attention to the companies that are entirely remote or will allow employees to be entirely remote, a lot of other companies are saying, hey, we don't want our, our employees to jump to any assumptions right. about what their future might look like. So we want to get out there right now and clarify. And, I'm, you know, it is a little bit of tech versus Wall Street. This has been going on for a decade, but a lot of the Wall Street firms want their people in person. And I think that could hurt their tech. You know, they're struggling to retain talent as it is, let alone if these rivals offer better perks like that. Uh, before we go, though, have to talk about some of these headlines coming out on executive compensation. Uh, Palantir and DoorDash were two notable debuts from 2020, and we're learning that they gave their chief executives two of the biggest payouts ever, according to securities filings. Including stock rewards, Palantir's Alex Karp raked in $1.1 billion last year. The DoorDash chief collected $410 million. It's worth noting neither of these companies is profitable yet, and neither DoorDash or Palantir in the S&P 500. The median pay for those CEOs was $13.4 million last year. Christina, uh, it, it, it seems excessive. I, I mean, it, it's one thing to sort of align executive compensation with shareholder interest. That's kind of the underpinning of, of all of these mm -hmm. different stocks that we're talking about. But a billion dollars, $410 million, what explains that? Well, according to the companies, it's to uh, boost morale, keep the CEOs on the job and motivate them to increase the company's value. So I know there's probably some Ph.D. people out there studying the perfect amount for a CEO to keep people motivated. But is it supposed to be that high? If you talked about those averages, uh, what is it, $13.4 million, the median CEO pay? Is it justified for a company that is unprofitable? I think that is the key point that you just mentioned. The company is unprofitable. Yes, for the DoorDash CEO. He has unrestricted or restricted shares that won't uh, he won't be able to earn until next June. But doesn't matter. These are high numbers we're talking about. Right. And I don't know if I was an employee working there. I don't know how I would feel. About well, that. I think it's important to distinguish between sort of compensation in the form of potential future equity versus cash that you're taking home today. Sure. Also, at the same time, though, you look at the case of Tesla, Julia, and here's Elon Musk, who had so much incentivized in uh, shareholder price and performance. I mean, basically his entire salary. And it's paid off both for him and for the company. And, and is that why so many others are eager to kind of follow that trend? Yeah, and I would point out that that's how DoorDash uh, structured their uh, compensation situation here. That equity award will only vest if the company's share price rises sharply from current levels between 25% and more than 3x. So I think there is pressure on these CEOs to have their shares go up. That's not the case with Palantir. His shares vest over, that CEO's shares vest over 10 years, regardless of what happens with that stock price. But I think that the whole Elon Musk model of motivating uh, motivating CEOs to have their shares go up is going to be something that we talk about a lot going forward. Joanna Stern, I'll give you the last word. I, I think it all comes back to the to the all all of you guys mentioned the word not profitable or the or the, the sentence these are not profitable companies yet. I think it's it, when you look at the list and and we printed it, we printed in the journal the the list of over since two thousand seven the pay 
uh, rising to the top are the companies that were not profitable, profitable, while some of the companies that are profitable are at the bottom of the list. Yeah, it's, it is a unique twist on it. And perhaps if they don't achieve those goals and it works out for everybody, they don't get paid. And they, But, you know, for the time being, it just feels like they're suspending reality. All right, uh, ladies, thank you all for joining us on Rapid Fire today. Julia Borson, Christina Partsinevelis, and Joanna Stern. Up next, take a look at this mystery chart. The name is up nearly 2,000% over the past year. As it catches the attention of retail traders, can it keep charging ahead? We'll ask the CEO. And as we head to break, June is Pride Month. All month long, CNBC is spotlighting contributors, business leaders, and our own anchors and producers. Here is CNBC's Ray Parisi. The day I came out, my parents cut me off like that, and we didn't speak for over 10 years. For a long time, I concealed the fact that I was gay because I thought it would somehow disadvantage me. But the truth is, having to conceal who you are is a giant disadvantage. Your biggest achievements in life and at work will come when you're true to yourself. And today, I'm proud to see so many companies, including this one, making diversity and inclusion a big priority. Welcome back. It's time for the big reveal of our mystery chart today. The stock is up more than 2,000 percent over the past year, and its EV charging station operator, Blink. The shares are about 40 percent below their all-time highs after a supercharged run. And while it's the darling of retail traders, some on the street are betting heavily against the stock. As of this morning, Blink is the fourth, fourth most shorted name, with about 36 percent of its float shorted. And with the big three automakers leaning into EVs, could the company get more of a boost or not. Joining me now is Michael Farkas, CEO of Blink Charging. Michael, it's good to have you back. Um, let's start with actually the second guest in two days who we've had on to speak about EV charging. Yesterday it was EVgo. They're about to go public via SPAC. We also had the news yesterday 7-Eleven is rolling out a bunch of its own fast charging EV stations. What is going to be Blink's competitive advantage? Um, we're the only fully vertically integrated EV charging infrastructure company that allows us to handle all different property types and all different types of owners. Um, most of our competitors are specialized in a specific field. Um, we literally are in from designing the, the hardware, manufacturing the hardware, although we outsource that. Um, the network is ours um, that operates all these charging stations. And, and first and foremost, we own and operate a lot of our charging stations. And that's really our main focus. So we also are learning more about fast charging versus traditional charging, how much charging we expect people to do at home versus at places like a coffee shop or a you know, traditional gas station. What's that network going to look like? What is your market share of EV stations right now? Um, we, we believe that um, most of the charging is going to be done um, in, in a residential or home environment, um, whether that's single family homes um, or multifamily residential facilities or in um, dense urban areas, literally on-street parking or in uh, mixed-use uh, garages. Um, that's where we believe a significant amount of the charging station um, revenue is going to be derived from. And you're looking at roughly about 85% of the market um, in that home um, um, or daytime environment, not really using superchargers. Although there's a massive need for superchargers, and we're very, very he heavily involved in, in that space, um, um, we do really foresee uh, um, you know, an environment where most of the charging is done um, at home or over long periods of time. It's much cheaper um, from a hardware perspective, um, also from just you know, getting access to that energy. Um, <clears throat> the more power you have, the more it costs you for that energy. Um, so people are very cost conscious, and if they could charge their car overnight, we believe that's what they're going to do. 
Right. Although our guest yesterday said that her fast charging uh, Phillips were often cost eight dollars or something to accent. But I know I'm kind of comparing apples and oranges here. I guess your investors probably want to know when you really expect to be profitable. What can you tell us on that front? Um, if you're talking about a unit by unit metrics, obviously we're trying to focus our, our deployment, especially those that we own, in areas where there is um, utilization or potential utilization. Um, you got to look at this industry for what it is today. Um, throughout the United States, we have a couple of hundred thousand charging stations deployed. Um, by some of the lowest estimates, by 2030, we're going to need 16 million, and I've seen even higher than that. Um, it, it's not right now necessarily about profitability. Obviously, that's always in our thought process. Right now, it's really about um, a land grab and having as many charging stations we have in locations um, that we own and operate and have long-term exclusive contracts with. It's ironic because a land grab is exactly how we were describing it this morning. You know, we understand that you know people want to get these stations out there. They're being more and more utilized by consumers. Do you expect to get compensated or incentivized somehow from the infrastructure plan? Oh, without a question. Um, we see a consensus now amongst Democrats and Republicans that the $4 billion being earmarked towards EV infrastructure, there's, there's no arguments on that. There may be arguments on other parts of the bill, um, but we have a consensus there. Um, there's been a lot of funding, even from the Obama days, Trump days, and what we're going to see from the Biden administration is going to be off the charts. Um, we believe we're going to be able to participate in a very big way because of having the flexibility and because having the locations and relationships that we have. When you look at us from an owner and operator perspective, and that's really um, competitive to EVgo, EVgo doesn't have their own network. They don't have their own charging stations. They, they uh, have those from others. Um, but when you look at that side of the business, there's a lot of um, opportunities from these grants, rebates, of us owning and operating more charging stations and being able to sell those chargers to others who want to own and operate them. Hmm. So we're impacted on both sides, not just on being able to build out um, our infrastructure. Well, we will keep following this space as it, become, as it grows and grows, and you're part of that. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate Michael Farkas of Blink. Speaking of EVs, let's get a market flash on Tesla. Shares are sinking, I believe. Phil Laveau is here. What's going on, Phil? Kelly, they're down on a report from the information which says it has internal documents that show orders for Tesla in China in the month of May were cut in half, essentially going from 18,000 down to 9,800 in terms of vehicle orders. They do not go into specifics in terms of uh, the model orders there. They do cite the fact that they believe, according to the information, that this is a reflection of some of the backlash that Tesla has received in China. But again, the significance here is that China is the world's largest EV market. Forty percent of the world's EVs are sold in China. And Tesla has the gigafactory there, Kelly. It's ramping up production. It cannot afford to have a prolonged stretch where orders may fall. But again, according to the information, May orders for Tesla in China down 50 percent. Kelly, back to you. Strange. Raises more questions, obviously, why it would happen all at once. Uh, but we'll follow it this afternoon, Phil, as we learn more. Thank you very much for bringing that to us. Phil Bow on why Tesla is selling off right now. Coming up, Florida is at odds with one of its biggest tourism industries over vaccination requirements. We have those details next. Welcome back, everybody. Want to draw your attention to shares of AMC. Look at this reversal. After yesterday's monster gains, the shares had started out negative, but they have climbed throughout the session. They turned a little bit higher after that share offering was completed. They have now turned positive. 
AMC is up six and a half percent at the moment. It's sixty six dollars and about 50 cents as it fluctuates around. Again, just to reiterate, we learned this morning that they completed their eleven and a half million share issuance, uh, bringing the total shares outstanding to over five hundred million, up tenfold from last year. And at an average price of around fifty dollars, those people are already in the green. Just a remarkable story and a tell for the whole market. In fact, it's highly correlated to the VIX right now. Uh, The Dow has also turned positive on the session. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.